You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's going on, everybody? Jared Sandler here with you. Getting ready for episode 36 of the Just a Sec podcast. I want to thank you for coming this far, even though it's not that far just yet, but simply clicking on the link. I really do appreciate it. And I uh, would certainly appreciate if you'd consider subscribing to the channel, liking, commenting, or maybe just passing this conversation along to a friend or friends or whomever you think might enjoy this conversation or other conversations a part of the Just a Sec series. And uh, I encourage you to check around the, the channel and see what other things, uh, what other content pieces uh, we try to bring you, not just covering baseball, not just interviews such as these. We try cover it all, and, and hopefully there's something on this channel for you or someone else to enjoy. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Chris Woodward is such a, an incredible individual. The, the values, the ideals, the way he thinks, he is a constant learner. And I think that's why he is such a perfect fit for the the job he has as the manager of the Rangers and someone the Rangers expect to usher them into their next wave of competitive baseball. And hopefully in this conversation you get to know what makes Chris tick and, and why he is such a unique individual in some of these regards, not just as a baseball person, but as a as a human being. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed getting to know Chris. I'm, I'm so thankful to call him a friend and was really excited to have this conversation with him, and I hope that you enjoy. So here we go, episode 36 of the Justice Sec Podcast with Rangers manager Chris Woodward. All right, Woody, you know, I ask a lot of people about their their childhood, uh, and the one thing I want to ask you, I know you were obviously very active athletically. How did sports impact you growing up beyond just the ability to have fun uh, and, and play these different games? In what ways did it impact you maybe beyond just that? Um, I think, honestly, like sports was kind of everything. You know, I obviously took school very serious. Um, I was a really good student, you know, all the way through. Um, but honestly, sports was my passion, man. Like, you know, and, and obviously baseball was probably the one I was most passionate. It's probably because I was the best at baseball. Um, but basketball was probably my second. Um, you know, golf, football, anything that was on, it was just, I, I was so uh, involved in, in just following the sports. And, you know, it, it honestly ruled my life. Like, all my off time was, was pretty much dedicated to sports. You know, like I said, whatever sport was in season, um, we'd play wiffle ball every day. Those were honestly my fondest memories of my childhood. Um, just getting you know a bunch of guys together. We'd ride our bikes over to the park. You know, I, I still remember you know as of probably ten years ago going back to the old elementary school that I lived by. I didn't even go to the school, but when we were in junior high, you know, we used that as a wiffle ball field. Um, 
you know, in the summertime, and, and the tape mark of our strike zone was, was still there, which was, uh, you could see it, they painted over it, they tried to, but the, the tape was still, the residue of the tape was still there, so it was just amazing to me to think, and I just brought back a ton of memories, and, and those were honestly my, my best memories as a child. Did you have any special wiffle ball pitches? I could pretty much throw anything. Um, I was very astute with the uh, with the wiffle ball. See, we we taped them up. We we played with the traditional white, you know, with the holes on one side. You know, we we definitely played that. Um, you know, we we had a limit on how hard you could throw it because you know if you throw it really hard, you can't even touch it because we we knew how to move it all around. Um, but we also taped up our balls. You know, the with the white tape kind of probably worked the best. It really stung though when it hit you. So my uh, one of my best friends, he he didn't have the command that I did. So he would hit me a lot. You know, he, him being right-handed and he hit. So I would hit left-handed on purpose just so he wouldn't drill me. Because <laughs> those balls, you know, they they run arm side quite a bit uh, and up. You know, I remember him hitting me in the face a few times. And I had welts all over my body, but you know, I was pretty good at commanding the ball. So if I needed to throw that ball outside, I would start it way outside because the ball moves so much. But those are things like, you know, they, they were, you know, it actually trained us. We weren't really trying to train by any stretch of the imagination, but we were just trying to have fun. Um, but, you know, it just taught us timing of hitting breaking balls and different speeds and how to manipulate the ball and how to spin the ball. All those things, uh, you know, I feel like kids are, you know, I'm having a hard time, you know, the younger kids just getting them to understand those things and have fun with the game in that regard instead of just always practicing for their youth tournaments. And, you know, that's all they do. They just, they, they only practice or play games. They don't really have this fun off time that, that kind of we had growing up. When I would play games like wiffle ball or maybe baseball in a, I don't want to say non-competitive form, but not, you know, for a team in an actual league in a game that somewhat mattered, I would always be, I would always try and emulate Ken Griffey Jr.'s batting stance, and if I wanted to change it up, maybe Gary Sheffield with that violent bat jerk. Well, who were the guys oh, you would try and emulate? Because I know you're a Cal Ripken guy, but he changed his batting stance every three days, so I guess it was really tough yeah. to emulate his batting stance. Who are the guys you would try to emulate? Uh, Griffey was a good one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, we actually used to play you know, our wiffle ball games where we'd have to choose a team. Typically, I was the Orioles because I was a big Ripken fan. But we would, have, you know, if we we knew the lineup. We knew all our guys. Um, whoever was in the lineup that day, we had to basically, you know, write out our lineup. But we had to try to hit like them because we knew what they hit like. You know, we saw a video of them. We saw what they looked like. We weren't allowed to hit like ourselves. We had to, you know, Brady Anderson's hitting. I had to stand straight up, you know, just like he did. Um, so I kind of knew all the Orioles the way they stood. Um, so you know, obviously Rifkin was. Yeah, I, d- I definitely had to change <laughs> pretty much every bat that I went up there. <laughs> Because uh, he changed his stance so often, but yeah, I mean the, the Sheffield, the uh, you know the Griffey was a good one. Actually, Griffey from from a left-handed standpoint, that was probably my favorite one. Obviously, it was the smoothest one, but it was the one. I'm not saying I could hit like Griffey, but and, and with a wiffle ball bat in my hand, I could. And it uh, that was the one I had probably the most success with you know, from a wiffle ball standpoint. A uh, a mutual friend of ours whose name rhymes with Schmeichel Schmung uh, wanted me to be sure to ask you. Who would win in a, a matchup between Bishop Amat and Northview? Northview, 100%. <laughs> so, you know, him being the sellout that he is, um, <laughs> you know, maybe Bishop Amat gave him a Mercedes or something. I, no no offense to Bishop Amat. They, they had an amazing school, and, you know, they were obviously well-regarded in football and basketball and, and baseball. 
Um, but he was supposed to go to Northeast, so you know we would have had it. We were ranked number one. I'm just saying, our senior year, um, you know, going into the preseason, we didn't finish that way at the end of the season. Neither did they. So he can't hold his hat on that. But we were ranked number one, and they were ranked number two to start our senior year. So you know, regardless of where, wherever he went, it didn't really matter. We were still number one. So he he played at Amat with Gabe Alvarez, who baseball fans maybe don't know because his career didn't uh, amount to maybe expectation, but he was a big deal. And then was Mike Lamb also on that high school team? Yeah, I believe so, yes. I, I don't know exactly the time, but I, I do know. I, I played against Mike Lamb, um, you know, when I was younger. You know, we, we definitely played against each other. He was on a lot of the same teams that Michael Young was on. Um, yeah, Gabe Alvarez was, of the, of the three of those guys, you know, obviously Michael Young was, was highly touted. Uh, very well known, but Gabe Alvarez was kind of the the can't miss, I guess you'd say. He was bigger than everybody. He had more power than everybody. He had a cannon from shortstop. He, he just he reminds me of like a uh, maybe what Alex Rodriguez may, probably looked like in high school. That, that's kind of that kind of talent. Um, and it just you know when he was on the field, you knew it. And you know Michael Young was good, but he was uh, you know. From a athletic, or I mean, from a stature standpoint, you know, he, he kind of looked like me. He just was better than everybody else. Um, Michael was just—he was such a good athlete that you know he stood out that way. But Gabe's like his presence, you know, on the field. You're like, oh my god, that's Gabe Alvarez. Like it was a big deal when you got to play against him. All right, so you go and and you know, I, I, Michael also wanted to be sure that uh, he let me know that the fact that you beat him to the big leagues is something that. Uh, you know, he, he uh, it's a chip on his shoulder. But, you know, one of the things you've talked about about your big league career is that you were constantly trying to uh, earn your keep and, and you're constantly having to prove yourself. And you never got that, you know, five-year deal where you could go to camp knowing, hey, I'm I'm the starter. I can, I can go one for the month of March and I'm going to be the starting, you know, whatever position. How did that experience, I'm sure there were negatives, obviously, but from a positive standpoint, how did that experience benefit you as a player and even now in your current role as a manager? Um, yeah, it helped a lot. It, it basically shaped, you know, this game will shape and define you however you want it to. So, you know, I think the resiliency of, of my career, you know, I think that's probably what I'm you know, most proud of. Uh, just I never quit, never gave up. And I, and I couldn't. You know, I, at some point when you start to have a family, you start having kids, it's no longer just about you. And, and I don't think I ever took that approach, you know, where it was only about me. Um, but you can't help it when, when you're on your own or, you know, you're, you're not married or you're single. It's, it is about you. So you tend to kind of insulate and you're like, all right, this is just about me. But once you start having kids, and um, I think that just the battle of not knowing every day, I didn't love it. You know, there was many times where I hated it because it's, you know, your back's against the wall. You go into camp knowing that you have to make a team. And, you know, it wasn't until the end of my career where I you know, didn't make the team a few times that, uh, you know, it started to kind of weigh on me. I, I knew I had, I had kids at home that, you know, you got to provide for them. And I think people look at, uh, you know, professional athletes as all being under kind of one umbrella where they're all overpaid and they're all just not. It's like, for the most part, most guys, I'd say 90% of guys, you know, have to, have to grind through. And, and the thing about baseball that teaches you that you have to keep getting back up, man the game's going to knock you down. You're not going to have everything figured out. The second you do something, you're going to get hurt. You know, and that's something that I had. I had injuries, 
you know, early in my career where it really kind of derailed my ability to play on an everyday basis. And that kind of, you know, took its toll on me, you know, mentally and physically. But, you know, you just keep going, man. You just keep fighting and you just keep learning and growing. And um, I will hit on the, you know, I did I did make it to the big leagues before Michael. I thought that was uh, that was a big deal for me. Honestly, like, you know, I'm not, he obviously had a Hall of Fame, in my opinion, a Hall of Fame career. Um, and I was nowhere near that. So I'm not, you know, saying I was better than him in any way. But uh, I was pretty proud of that because he, you know, for, I guess people don't understand, like when I was growing up, he was the best. You know, he was what I kind of looked at as he was the bar. The, the bar was high. You know what I mean? Like, that was that was it. Um, and I knew him personally. Like, we, you know, we were friends. We went, you know, junior high together. So to actually beat him to the big leagues was, you know, for me, was a was a big deal. For him, he didn't really care. He's like, listen, I'll, whatever. I'll win the batting title two years from now, and you're just going to be a, you know, a backup player. So, I, you know, he obviously had a great career. And, um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it did mean something to me, you know, personally that I was able to accomplish that goal. You know, he did share this with me, and, and I don't know if he shared this with you before. Uh, and, and for people listening, I mean, I think your relationship with him is is really neat. And, uh, you know, there, there are competitive elements to it, but, you know, the, the support you guys have for one another is, is really special. But one thing he said was when he joined the Blue Jays organization, he saw every middle infielder, uh, as competition, except for you, not because he didn't value your abilities. He said because he was so proud of the player that you had become, and that he would tell every instructor he could, "Yeah, I know that guy. Like that. That's like he's my friend. I know him." And I just thought that was really cool. Uh, and I don't know if he's ever shared that with you or not, but I figured I'd I'd share that with you uh, in the event he hadn't. That you know, it's it's not that he didn't think that you were good enough to be worthy of, of competition, but I think uh, the relationship and the pride he had in, in uh, his relationship with you kind of uh, overwhelmed whatever competitiveness he would have otherwise uh, directed towards you. Yeah, it does mean a lot. I, I think, you know, Michael and I, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that, uh, you know, our path, you know, connected again because, um, you know, we do. We do share a bond of a, of a childhood that, uh you know, in the same area, kind of the same group of, of people, very similar, you know, upbringing. Um, you know, it's it, it's meaningful for me just because it's that part of my life. I don't really have anybody else that was there that was that was witness to that. So, you know, anything we share, you know, but for him to say those things, um, he he has mentioned that to me uh, over the last couple of years, where you know he said, you know, when I got into the Blue Jays organization, like, you know, he saw that that I was having an impact. Now, I didn't look at it that way because I was just trying to, you know, I was just honestly trying to keep the uniform on. Um, but for him to say that, you know, he felt there was, you know, people kind of looked up to me and, um, you know, in the organization and that the way I kind of went about my business was well known, you know, that meant more to me than anything I'll ever do on the field. So uh, he has shared those those sentiments with me and I, and I really appreciate it because it means a ton, obviously, coming to him. Now, you mentioned Cal Ripken earlier, and previously you've shared a, a fun story about your first interaction with Cal Ripken, the guy that you absolutely admired. I know you wore his jersey number when you know that opportunity was available. Uh, what was that, that first interaction with Cal Ripken like, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in the middle of a, of, of a game between the, the Blue Jays and the Orioles? Yeah, and there wasn't. It was really kind of one-sided because I was so terrified to even speak a <laughs> word to him. Um, I, this is two years into my career in the big leagues, where I've t- 
terrified to say anything to him because I was I wasn't embarrassed that I was you know a big fan. I just didn't know what to say. Like you just kind of in, a little bit in awe, but also it's awkward. It's awkward to tell another another man like I I worship you, man. I idolize you. Like you don't understand. I used to wake up in the morning like everything. I used to defend you to all my friends, to everybody, you know, in, in California. Nobody was an Oriole fan but me. So, you know, I'd go to war for this guy without ever, ever having met him or know him personally. So um, to see him in a game and for him to actually tell me, hey, Woody, how's it going, man, in the middle of a game? You know, I don't even know if I responded. I can't even remember. If I just, I think I said, hey, Cal, that was about it. But, you know, for him to actually utter those words, you know, those syllables out of his mouth and say my name, like, and then to call me Woody on top of that. I, I remember going to sleep that night, like not being able to sleep because I was, I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I mean, I, I literally couldn't believe that he actually, you know, spoke to me and, and knew who I was. I, I had no idea he actually knew that I was on the Blue Jays, you know, but for him to call me Woody, you know, was beyond anything I could ever have imagined. Now, I know towards the end of your career, you spent, uh, I believe, a spring training with the Yankees and, and you know, got to interact with Derek Jeter and, and maybe spend a little bit of time with him. What, what was that like? What were your, your takeaways from uh, time spent with, with Jeter? Yeah, it was kind of cool because we would actually, he lived in, in Tampa and, you know, I was living in, you know, uh, Palm Harbor at the time. So we, we would actually, we would go to the field before spring training started. You know, I started going to the field. You know, two or three weeks early, I asked their, you know, the trainer if I could go over to the complex and hit just to get to know the coaches, and and so he was there, and so I got to spend a little bit of a little bit of personal time with him, and you know, we had played against each other quite a bit um, through my first, you know, six or seven years, and so we we knew each other but didn't really know each other, so it was really cool to get to just see how he interacts and to, to I see why he is beloved. You know, you you get to see very quickly. You hang around him. You talk to him. He treats everybody, you know, you know, very, very personable, you know, very into, you know, he makes everybody kind of feel like they're important. Um, you know, doesn't disregard anybody. He walks by a security guard. He knows their name. He gives them a moment, you know, and it's brief, but, it, you know, it makes people feel like he truly cares about them. And, you know, just you see that over and over. There's nothing. It wasn't an act. It was very genuine. It was, you know, there was a humble, you know, belief inside of him that uh, he was grateful for every day you can feel. Um, but, you know, when he got a uniform on, man, and he got a bat in his hand or glove on, like, you know, he's pretty confident, obviously a great player. Um, but you could just see that the humble beginnings and the roots, uh, very, very genuine, genuine person. And, you know, to see that on a daily basis, you just, I've seen superstars and there's always this, like, air of, you know, I'm better than everybody. And you just never felt that with Derek. And that, that was something that stood out to me. And it's, it's an amazing quality to have. It's pretty rare in, a, in an elite athlete or, or a superstar athlete, you know, kind of like the, that, that's put on a pedestal like that. Well-deserved pedestal, but it's put on a pedestal. and They can start to take themselves a little bit too serious at times, and he never did that. All right, Woody, you, you've dealt with, uh, you know, some personal adversity, you know, not going 0 for 4 and, and being in the middle of a slump, but, you know, losing your dad at a young age and, uh, you know, I know within your family, with your wife, Aaron, you've talked about, uh, you know, the, the adoption of your son, Mason, and, and some of the challenges that led to that. And, and obviously that's never an easy process. I, I'm just curious, what is what is your approach to dealing with like that level of adversity? And, and how, you know, how have you refined that 
uh, over the years and in, in how you approach challenges again, not, not being in a slump and, and not, uh, you know, making an error and, and, you know, feeling like you cost your team the game, but stuff that's, you know, maybe a level or two above that in terms of gravity. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty big philosophical question, you know, for, for all of us, you know, how, how do we handle adversity? How do we handle, you know, things that are going to happen and they're going to happen. Like sometimes life isn't fair. And I tried to look at, you know, early on in my life, I kind of was able to kind of roll with punches at times. You know, I didn't really get too high and low as far as, you know, how to handle things, but, you know, I've always tried to tried to find the positive in everything, and there's not a whole lot of positive in a few of those situations. So, um, you know, I tried not to ask, not to point fingers and say, why me, or anything like that, and to try to look at, okay, how do I get through this? How do we get through this? You know, I mean, whether it was, my, you know, obviously my, my immediate family, you know, with, uh, you know, my mom and my sisters, you know, how do we do that? How do we get through that? And I think that that's, uh, you know, I, those are questions that we have to ask all the time. And I think we all grow as people and how to how to deal with those things. And now I'm teaching my kids, you know, how to how to deal with, with certain things that happen to them, whether it's heartache or whatever they're having to go through. Um, hopefully not at that level um, of grief, but, uh, you know, move on. Honestly, like we, we have a limited time on this earth and, you know, there's certain things that we need to do to maintain, maintain that we're grateful for, for every day we have, but also, you know, not forget, you know, there hasn't been a day that I haven't, you know, forgot about things that my dad kind of helped me with, but, uh, you know, I have moved on obviously and, and tried to take the positives that he left inside of me and, and, and move forward. I think two of the things that, that stand out to me about you really from our first interaction uh, over the last couple of years, you are, you love teaching and you, you genuinely care about impacting people. And, and I want to hit on those two things. I want to start with the teaching side of it. Who were some of your influence, uh, influences as a teacher that, that maybe have helped you shape your understanding of how to, to teach others, uh, you know, over your career, be it in sports or even outside of sports? Yeah, I think I've had, I think I've, I've had a lot. Honestly, there's, there's been a, quite a few people, honestly, with, you know, my parents, you know, my mom took on a huge role. My parents did get divorced, you know, when I was 12, 13. So my mom took on a huge role. She did a ton for me. She took me to every practice. She was always there for me, you know, taught me, you know, good morals, how to be a good person, how to treat people right. So all those things are obviously for my parents and mainly my mother, um, just because she was there so often. Um, my high school coach, you know, kind of took me under his wing, you know, when I was in you know, 13, 14, that was kind of around the time my, my dad kind of, you know, wasn't as present. So he kind of definitely, he definitely filled that role that I desperately needed. Um, and then on, on through high school and then into pro ball, like he really helped me, you know, be able to do that. And then, you know, in my, in my professional life, um, as a ball player, you know, I've had some amazing coaches. I think, you know, a guy like Brian Butterfield stands out, you know, he, went above and beyond just from not just from a baseball standpoint but just a, a you know a mentality you know how to compete how to prepare those things and then you know just from life standpoint like believe in who I am man like believe what I am is, is good enough and I think that that was a huge one for me I would I would have never got through all that if I, if I hadn't had his uh, his leadership and his impact um, but I think there's been so many other guys, you know, Jeff Cashel comes to mind as the strength coach that I had. We're still really dear friends up to now. Um, he has a huge impact on me, just mentality wise, learning, growing, 
you know, always positive. So I've had these people and I, and I, and I try to tell younger people when I'm, you know, when I'm trying to impact them or trying to provide a, you know, now in an organization full of impact people is that, you know, if you keep, if you, if you do the right things and you put yourself out there and you're, you're, you're working your butt off and you're wanting to learn, wanting to grow and you're, you're trying to be as impactful as you can, um, you're going to attract those people. Um, and that's, I think that's what's always kind of stood out to me is because there's always been somebody there for me. And, you know, some people don't have, you know, those people in their lives. Um, but I feel like if you, if, if you do the right things and, and, you, and you seek out those kind of people, those, those people will be attracted to you. And, and that's what I'm all about in this organization. And I'm lucky that we're, that I'm in this organization because we have a lot of like-minded people and, you know, it is, it impact is everything. Impact is like, what are you living for if you're not impacting people? In my opinion, you know, it's great to, to be successful personally, but it's more than that. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely more than that for me. And I know a lot of the, the best people in the, you know, in the world that I know or don't know personally, but I see the impact they're having. That's what they believe as well. So I'm never going to stop that as long as I live. And I know my, you know, my wife and my kids feel the same way. And, you know, we're trying to make as much impact as we can, you know, with every day. I think one of the things that jumps out is that you also have a, a passion to learn. Uh, and even at your level and, and what you've accomplished, it doesn't matter who you're speaking to. There, there's always a part of you that's open to the possibility that this person or this event is going to teach you something. Uh and so I guess I'm curious, just not even necessarily from a baseball standpoint, because I, I, I think we will focus in on that in a second, but just in general, how do you go about learning? What is your mindset and approach to, to learning in general? Yeah, I think, first of all, you got to be open. You know, the, the biggest thing is you got to be open to learn. you got to want to learn. And I think, you know, some of the best advice I've ever been given is every single person that you come in contact with can teach you something. If you look at through that lens, you'd be surprised how, how, how many things you may have missed over the years or how much you may miss from somebody who you disregard because you think, ah, they're just whatever. Even the, the lowest of the people you think, okay, that guy can't impact me. There's no way. Find out. Find out. Get to know. I mean, everybody's in their own situation. Now, there's some people that will frustrate you because they don't operate the way you feel like or they don't live the way you feel like or you know their their views or their whatever their beliefs are you know that they don't align with yours that's fine but why what what makes them different like you know and it's amazing how much you can learn from every individual um and in turn once they feel that you've accepted some of them they typically tend to do the same for you so you know that's where you get the you know the, the dialogue back and forth and you can you know, you can you can see so much growth and so much learning from each other. Um, I think that that's something that most people nowadays, and you just see it. It breaks my heart to see you know our country, or just in general, like people just disregarding people, disregarding like you know because they believe in that they're the enemy, and that's it, it's unfortunate because we could learn so much from both sides, you know, of differing views. Some of the you know my best friends have differing viewpoints on certain things you know, in our lives in you know, philosophically speaking or politically speaking, whatever. Um, but the beauty of that is that they have a belief. There's a reason why. So once I learned that, okay, that makes a little more sense. You know, maybe it's their upbringing or their background or whatever it may be. Um, I just think we cannot disregard anybody 
and it's amazing how much you do learn from people when you just stay open. And if you have the desire to learn, there's a lot that people can teach you. Have you always been so curious and, and open-minded or were there experiences that kind of pushed you down that path? I think it's just honest experience. I've always been open. I've always been very, very curious um, as a young kid. And it brings me back to my dad. My dad was very, very curious and very scientific minded. Um, so I asked him a ton of questions. I probably drove him nuts when I was a kid. It was always like, why dad? Why dad? Why is this? Why is that? You know? And, and I think, you know, that was outside of sports. Right. That was just, why is the sky blue? Like, what are the stars? Like, what, what is it? Why? And so I just kept going deeper and deeper and basically into to as many rabbit holes as I could find myself because I was like, I was curious. It, I, my, my mind was just like, this has to make sense to me or otherwise I'm going to go nuts. Like, I don't understand. I'm not just going to accept this. I have to find out why. And so that kind of, you know, mentality, you know, it drives you. It, it makes you a little bit insane at times because until you find an answer, you go nuts. Right, you just you just have to keep keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Why can't I figure this out? Why can't I figure this out? And so when that kind of obviously same mentality in, in, in sports, you know, I always had to be the best at everything. You know, and not that I was, but I just always had to figure things out when it came to sports. So you know, I'd sit there and shoot till four in the morning. You know, okay, why is my shot going right, or why why can't I shoot it straight every time? So I just sit there and shoot and shoot and shoot. So it was that kind of relentless almost like OCD kind of mentality where it's just like, I got to keep going. And so when you learn that way, typically you're obsessed with trying to, to, to learn more. And it's a beautiful thing when your mind starts expanding and you start realizing the more you know, and I've, everybody says this, the more you know, the more like you realize you don't know. And so it becomes like this giant world of like, man, it's a little bit um, overwhelming at first. I think that's why a lot of people get scared of, of, of kind of pushing themselves to learn more about things because they realize the more they do start to know about it, they're just scratching the surface on what other people may know. And that's, uh, like I said, it's a little bit overwhelming. Sometimes it's a, you know, it gets in the way of progress for some people because they get scared. Um, but I've always said, no, push through that. If you push through that, it's amazing what you find on the other side. And you kind of find yourself in, in, in the same, in the process, right? You find out what you truly believe and why you believe it. And that's a beautiful thing as opposed to just following, you know, something that you heard or read. You actually have some real understanding of the subject. Woody, you are a part of a, a game that is evolving at, it seems like, record speed with technology and information, stuff that certainly wasn't around throughout the entirety of your playing career and, and heck, things that weren't necessarily even around when you started coaching. Uh, I, I think, you know, I've heard from you, you hear from a lot of people that adapting or the ability to adapt is, is so huge in any role. Uh, how have you been able to adapt to the way this game has changed and been able to incorporate it now in, in what you're trying to do with, uh, you know, the, the team and the players in this organization? I think I'm lucky. I'm lucky that the, uh, you know, my career ended the way, you know, a lot of people may look at, say, man, I wish I played now. I'm glad I played when I played because now, you know, I'm a much better coach than I ever was a player, I feel like. Um, I think that that's where my strength really, truly lies. Um, but I think, you know, the experiences that I had to go through as a player, all the ups and downs, all the just getting kicked down, beat down, and getting through it, it allows me to relate better as opposed, you know, to the guy who 
maybe didn't go through all that stuff and now the game has changed and you know I, to have the the knowledge base i guess of, of of all these things that we're doing now if i didn't have the relatability to the players it would it would it wouldn't come across the same so you know i'm looking through this lens and saying listen I'm trying everything we can to, to figure out the way to make you the best player possible. And when players understand that, when they feel that, there's not much they can say back to dispute it. Because we are now in a position where, as an organization, I'm really proud of it, that we can provide everything possible for a player to improve on every front. There isn't anything that we can't help them with. Um, and that, that, to me, you know, and then I know the players feel the same way. Um, that's exciting. That's exciting when a player feels like, okay, whether it's my technique or whether it's my physical ability, my mobility or whatever it may be, my cardio, anything, you know, my mental ability, can I, can I improve? You know, and they have an idea of how to, you know, not only diagnose me, but pr- provide me a prescription or a blueprint to say, here, here's your pathway for success. I'm, a, I'm obsessed with that, right? I'm obsessed with that for all of our guys. And I get so much satisfaction to see how hard our staff works and our organization works to provide these things to these players and then to see the players buy in and then to see them improve. That's, that's like the ultimate for me as a, as a leader and as a teacher and, a, you know, like you said, an impact person. Like if we can impact them that way, we're making better people in the process as well. So that is, you know, beyond anything that I could ever do as a player. But to have the, you know, the, the, I guess the experiences that I had to go through, you know, where I didn't maybe have all these things. Now I can provide some, some real feedback to these guys and say, listen, this stuff would have helped me, you know, you know, in my own personal, you know, experiences, this would have been a huge help for me and maybe could have, you know, whatever done something in my career. And I, I want to keep you guys from following that same path. Maybe you guys go on a better path where you can obviously, you know, help us win a bunch of games and make a bunch of money and, you know, we'll be champions because of it. Um, and I think the players really, uh, they, they really want to believe in something like that. All right, Woody, I, I know we've touched on some of this stuff, uh, but I, I definitely want to make sure I ask you this question directly in case there's something maybe that, that hasn't come up, but what are your core values of, of leadership? You're in a position where you, you are responsible for leading uh, a number of men and women and, 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 you know, the, the feedback so far through two years is that this is something you do really well. well. What is important to you when you go about your business every day as a leader? Um, we could talk for about five hours about this one. <laughs> um, but I think, the, I think the biggest thing is, is to care. You know, I think that's the, the biggest thing. Um, you know, for me, that's probably the, the number one, you know, make, make everybody here feel valued because they are valued. You know, I mean, I think that's, that's probably number, number one for me in leadership. Um, if you, if you lead from that in that way, um, you know, put others ahead of yourself, you know, that, I think that's, you know, I, I say it all the time to our staff, you know, it, from, from a leadership standpoint, I talk to our players about this, especially, you know, our leadership players. Um, you can't have an ego, you know, the ego gets in the way, right? You take yourself too serious. I don't take myself that serious. I just take myself serious in, in regard to how much I can impact the organization in a positive way. Um, get to move this organization forward. I, I wouldn't say I'm you know, overly demanding, but I'm very demanding in, in what I expect out of everybody here. You know, I expect everybody to be respectful, first of all. Like, there's, that's probably my non-negotiable number one. Is you have to be respectful. Like, we're, we're all working hard here. Nobody's going to disrespect anybody else. 
um, we all got to work together, right? So anybody disrespecting anybody else, there's no to- we, we can't tolerate that. But I do want people to give their opinion. They should feel comfortable to give their opinion. Um, you know what I mean? So if you can if you can lead in that way, now I mean we can talk for, like I said for hours about so many other things um, from a leadership standpoint. You know, obviously being positive every day. I don't I don't preach being positive just to you know to create a cozy environment so people are comfortable. I just believe it's healthier, right? You, your your brain works better, your body works better. You know, athletes function better when they're when they have a positive state of mind. Not necessarily like a smile on their face, but just a positive, optimistic outlook to the future. Um, and that keeps people growing, that keeps people learning, that keeps people wanting to come back. If you're not enjoying or getting some fulfillment or satisfaction out of your job every day, what the hell are you doing it for? You know what I mean? And I love my job. I love coming to the field every day. I love talking to our guys. I, I don't get tired of it. Um, and I think that that's something from a leadership standpoint. Like, I want to you know, carry on to the next guy. So whoever either takes my job or, you know, works within the organization, they're doing the same thing they're, they're, every day. You know, this is a, this is a grind of a day every day, but if you don't enjoy it, man, it, what's, what's the point of doing it? Find something else to do. And you know, our game is such a beautiful game that you know, you're going to get your butt kicked sometimes, you know, it's going to happen. I'm not going to make the right decision every day. Our players are going to punch out. They're going to pop up. They're going to, you know, have bad games. But the fact that I'm going to be there standing there the next day looking them in the eye and saying, hey, we got this. We're going to come back and do it again tomorrow, and we're going to love every minute of it. That, you know, keeps those guys going forward. And our staff is amazing at that. You know, and I obviously try to try to lead from the top down in that way. Um, but honestly, putting everybody ahead of myself, you know, and, and, and being humble, in this in this job, I think sets the tone, you know, and provides that kind of egoless, you know, top down, um, and it just shows the rest of the guys like you don't have to have an ego about this. You don't have to take yourself so serious. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I guess that, that that's probably really relevant with the next question I want to ask. You know, it's it everything's all fine and peachy until something goes wrong, and and I think that in any form of leadership, how you handle conflict or, or that, that first sign of, uh, you know, something that's not just all sunshine and, and roses is really important. And I'm sure there were things that, uh, we have no idea about before your first game managing, but one thing that, that always, I, I think will stand out is your first game managing against the Cubs. They have a lefty starting and Shinsu Chu, who's a lefty was not in the starting lineup. And it's something that impacted him in a way that maybe you didn't realize. And you were very quick to a have a, a private conversation with him and then come out publicly and say, Hey, you know, I messed that up. And I just thought that that was such an important moment because someone in a leadership position, who's not able to admit when they mess up. And, and I certainly don't have the expertise and knowledge to know whether you did or didn't, uh, mess up or whether that was the right or wrong thing to do. But the fact that you came out and, and addressed it immediately and, and uh, you know, accepted that it's probably easy for Joe Torrey to do because he's won several world series and uh, you know, has the track record, but this is your first game as a big league manager. I, I was just always really impressed by that. And I, I don't know what led to that. Is that, you know, it, 
how important is that? I guess is is, is maybe the, the best way to ask this. How important is the ability? And, and you touched on it with no ego, having no ego, but the ability to uh, deal with conflict in your role or really any leadership role. Yeah, it's it's a crucial part of it, right? And and I think from a, from a leadership standpoint, we, you know, leaders have to be accountable. If you're, you know, that's one thing we, you know, every, you know, the cliche of leadership, right? You, you got to keep this guy accountable. But if you're not holding yourself accountable and you're not willing to admit when you you made a mistake um, to the group, then you're not setting the the example for the rest of the guys. And and listen, I could easily in my you know in my position just rule with an iron fist and say I don't care if I make a mistake. Whatever I say goes, so it doesn't matter. So you you know eliminate yourself from that accountability you know trains. I don't believe in that. I, I you know I just I didn't do that on opening day with any intention to show that I'm accountable or anything like that. I just truly felt like after the, after I, you know, dealt with the situation that you and I had, you know, a week long of conversations, which, you know, I, I would do it differently if I, if I had to do it again, but I'm really grateful for the time that I got to spend with you because we had a week of, of, you know, not pleasant in the beginning conversations to, you know, maybe three or four days of a very like deep, conversations where I got to know him on a much more personal level and understand the, the inner psyche of Shinsu Chu, which, I mean, I was, you know, in awe of who this guy is after that. And, you know, we had a very, very powerful, like mutual respect for one another after that. And so only me screwing up would that have occurred. You know I mean, really, maybe, you know, maybe a halfway into the season or a year into the season, you know, at the end of the season, maybe I would have gained that that knowledge of who he really is, but it forced me to in the beginning. So I'm grateful for that, but I would definitely do it different if I had to do it over again. I didn't realize, you know, shame on me for not knowing him. You know, and listen, I, I get it. There's a, a thousand reasons why I shouldn't have known my first year. I don't have time to, you know, dig into the psyche of, you know, 50 guys in spring training and then 25 guys to start the season. I try as best I can, but you know, I owed it to him to, to maybe dig a little deeper to see, okay, if I sat him on opening day, what that would mean to him and his culture and his family. And, you know, it, it, I, now that I look back, I'm like, I screwed it up. Like, I, I should have absolutely started. Who cares about the lefty? You know, and I've always said this, and, you know, there's a few things that happened throughout my career as a player and then as a coach that sometimes the situation is bigger than, you know, what the numbers might say or, you know, what the, the right thing to do sometimes has nothing to do with left, right, or, or anything, you know, from an analytical or a statistical standpoint. Um, and we got to be mindful of those situations. And, you know, I've always prided myself on that. So when I didn't make that decision, I had to say, you know what, I screwed it up. I, I shouldn't have done that. I, he should have absolutely been starting opening day. And that would have meant Hunter Pence didn't start. So, you know, it was, a, it was not an easy decision either way. Um, I made a decision. I told him exactly what I felt and why I made that decision. He understood that, but he still didn't obviously agree. Um, but he did respect me for, for having an opinion. I'm not going to, to give a get, make a decision without fully thinking it through. And, you know, he appreciated my honesty about the whole situation. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're way closer because of it. Last thing, Woody, uh, you know, one thing that, has really stood out is is how committed you are to to being a dad and a husband despite the fact that your job is incredibly demanding whether that's you know making the the schlep 
every day in, in spring training to your home in Chandler, which puts you on the road for, you know, multiple hours a day with the commute or, uh, you know, doing everything you can to, to just be involved in, in your son Grady's baseball or to hang out with uh, your middle son Mason and, and obviously your daughter Sophie and just being involved in what she's doing. I, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to ask about Mason. Uh, you, you guys, you and your wife Erin adopted Mason. I know that you know those experiences uh, are not always the easiest. They're not necessarily seamless. Uh, what was your experience like in, in adopting Mason, and, and maybe what, what, do you, what did you take away from that? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to, to second that, my, you know, my family's everything. You know, that's, that's always going to be number one. As much as I love, you know, my job and, you know, I'm very passionate about it. And I'll always, you know, whatever I'm doing, I'm always going to give, you know, everything I have. But my family's number one. I mean, that's, they're so far above everything else that, you know, nothing will, will stop that. Um, and as far as, you know, obviously my kids, you know, my wife and I, you know, Aaron and I are, are very passionate about how we, we lead our kids. You know, I lead our kids the same way I lead our players. You know, I mean, it's, it's very similar. You know, we're trying to create the best possible version of themselves. Um, not caring if they ever become a superstar athlete or a famous musician. That, that's not, you know, I want these to, to be the most impactful versions of themselves um, and be proud of themselves. You know, I think that that's a huge thing. Um, but as far as Mason goes, man, that was... Man, if you didn't, I, you know, I'm not the, the most religious, you know, I'm definitely, you know, Mason changed my opinion in, in, in a lot of ways spiritually, just because uh, I think my wife changed my opinion in a lot of ways um, when we first met. And, you know, the, the way we were able to, Mason was, you know, brought into our lives was, I mean, there's, it, it's hard to imagine any other way, but something divine, honestly, um, you know, we had a hard time, you know, getting pregnant. We had Sophie, she was four or five. My wife was going through some tough, she had a really bad miscarriage and then a few others after that. And it was just a really difficult time for her. Um, so we, you know, she always told me, she's like, I want to adopt. And so we, we started the process and the way we ended up getting Mason, you know, was like I said, it was the, the way things lined up. Uh, it, it had there was no other way that those things, it wasn't a coincidence. And listen, I'm the most, you know, like I said, curious and skeptical when it comes to, you know, divine intervention or something like that. I think things just happen most of the time because of coincidence. But this one, you know, proved to me that, okay, there's, there's something bigger at work here. Um, but he's an awesome kid, man. He's, you know, he wants to be a chef, plays the piano, does all the things that I probably didn't do. And I love every minute of it. Honestly, it's, he's, he's our cultured one. Um, he brings culture into the family. Uh, he does things that are that are different than, than the other two, which we love. Um, and he's just got a, he's got a passion for, for different things. Um, he doesn't love sports, which I'm totally fine with. Um, he'll sit and watch it with me every once in a while, but you know, I'm fine with that. Honestly, I told him one day, like he's trying to play baseball and he's the dad, I just don't love it. And I'm like, and don't play. He, he, well, I don't want to let you down. Uh, you know, and, and it broke my heart. Cause I'm like, he felt like he had to play because he didn't want to let me down. And I said, Mason, you follow your dreams, man. You follow your passion. I can't, I don't want you to follow something that you don't even, that you don't have a passion for. And so he did. And, he, and so, you know, I think from that point on, you know, he's really kind of followed his own passions and, you know, we're going to support them, you know, to no end. Um, Cause we, I love that our, that our kids are passionate about different things. 
I mean, I can tell you, first of all, his Instagram food reviews are, are outstanding, <laughs> and he's already a, a way better dresser than I am. So I think I could uh, learn a thing or two from Mason. <laughs> yeah, he's got some style, man. <laughs> he likes nice things. He's uh, he's motivated. That's, that's the one thing. He's good with like, – he, he's just so different than – than the other two. He's great at time management, which the other two are like kind of spazzes and they just kind of do whatever. They're kind of living in the moment. He's like not afraid to map out his old day. He's got his homework. And this off time, his, his like, his ability to, to time manage has been amazing. Like through, you know, it's a, it's a crisis. It's, all the school went online and all that. He's like, well, I got to do this, this, this today. And then I got to do that, that, that tomorrow. And he maps out his whole like week basically. You know, and then he goes and does his own thing after that. So he's earned his time to kind of do whatever he wants um, in the off time. There you go. That's my conversation with Rangers manager Chris Woodward. Hope you got to know Woody just a little bit. And I'm sure if you tuned in, this is a guy who you'd agree is super easy to root for and so hey if you don't already root for chris woodward and the rangers you can start now the season begins for the rangers on friday you can follow along but really appreciate woody taking the time to share on his experiences from start to to present day uh really a a, a tremendous person tremendous family and again super thankful of that conversation if you enjoyed it, would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the channel, like, comment, or share this conversation with friends, family, whomever, Rangers fans, baseball fans, Dodgers fans, Mariners fans, Blue Jays fans, Woody played for a few different teams, or just, again, anyone. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, but thanks again for listening to episode 36 of the Justice Sec Podcast. Back with you on Thursday for episode 37 with radio legend Howard Eskin. So I'm looking forward to that, but until then, stay safe, and I'll talk to you in a sec.